You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, produced by University FM. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are, enjoy today's episode. And here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Lorraine Dastin, who is at the Max Planck Institute for the History of Science in Berlin, also affiliated with the Committee on Social Thought at University of Chicago, and the author of uh, a bunch of books. The most recent book is called uh, Rules, uh, A Short History of What We Live By. Also got this nice little short book called uh, Against Nature and some other works. Welcome, Lorraine. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be with you. Now, as I was saying, this book rules. <laughs> I don't know what rule you followed in trying to put it together. It actually, I think, exemplifies very well the argument that you're making. Historians are always toggling back between kind of the general and the specific, right? Trying to make sort of general claims, but then, you know, offering up examples. And we're supposed to learn from those examples and reason from those examples. And I think if I were to summarize, and it's very hard to summarize this book because there's so many kind of pointers and arrows that take you outside of the work and make you want to pursue these different lines of inquiry. But I guess if I could summarize, this concept of rules had multiple meanings. You you talk about this semantic cluster that originated with the Greeks and followed through to the Romans, and, and I guess continued all the way up through the early modern period, where we saw the domain of rules kind of split, right? And one sort of way of thinking about pattern or rules got kicked out right? and, and sent to the sidelines. And this has had some profound consequences, I think, not only for how we live, but also how we think, right? And, and in some sense, there's a certain reasoning muscle which has atrophied in, in the modern period, and that is to think in terms of models. Now, I think there, there are some domains where this stays alive in the world of the common law, jurisprudence, and also in the domain that I teach, which is strategy. So <laughs> I teach strategy using cases. And so I'm trying to defend that, <laughs> that, that domain of case-based reasoning. I guess the first question I'd have for you is, how did you draw boundaries around the domain of rules? It seems like such a huge topic. I did so, first of all, with great reluctance. Somehow every topic I've ever written a book on has turned out to be the tail end of all human knowledge. <laughs> so you're like Kazuban. Teaching universal mythology, that thought. He and I are soulmates. And so you asked exactly the right question. And I, I think that one practical reason for getting this book done was that I was, I not only had a publisher's deadline, I had exceeded the publisher's deadline by three or four years. And even the most indulgent publisher at some point loses patience. That was the first. And the second was that, as you say, I began to realize that I could narrow the blooming, buzzing diversity of all the specific kinds of rules to these three strands, which I follow, the semantic cluster you mentioned, of the rule as a tool of measurement or calculation, most familiarly to us, the algorithm the model or paradigm, and the law. And as you say, the model or paradigm, which is in many ways the dominant meaning until about 1800, I would say that it's been kicked out, but it's gone underground. I think we actually use it all the time, but we're ashamed to admit it. And it's an interesting question where that embarrassment comes from. But you're right to say that it is alive and well wherever case-based reasoning is taught, whether it is in the law school, the medical school, or the business school. It's very interesting that it's in what are called the higher faculties that case-based reasoning lives on. Although I think it seldom lives on in association with the word rule. On the contrary, correct me if this is not the case in your teaching, I think that case-based reasoning is meant to sharpen the student's eye for exceptions rather than blithe generalizations across wide swathes of experience to make them attentive to details and to particulars. So the way of bounding the topic was once I had this 
triple thread of Ariadne that I could follow, I had some reason, albeit with great regrets, for excluding some of the examples that were left on the cutting room floor. Yeah, it's interesting that engineering is not in that bundle of professional occupations that is more case-based, right? Because the word engineering, which I found out in your book, (laughs) it lines up with genius, which I guess has something to do with improvisation, right? I mean, one thing you you don't want your engineer doing is improvising when they're building the bridge and so forth. I wonder whether that's true. I mean, I don't have, unfortunately, a lot to do with professional engineers, but I would be astonished if, for example, to take your example in building a bridge, there were not adjustments and tweaks that had to be made for unforeseen local circumstances. Of course, the overall construction plan is highly regulated in the algorithmic sense of rule-bound, but especially when you're dealing with, say, a dam or a bridge and you must deal with the forces of nature notoriously fickle and capricious, I'm sure engineers still have that talent for improvisation. Yeah. Well, maybe we can go back to the beginning, right? I'm always fascinated how etymology can tell us a lot about how we think in the present, right? And you go all the way back to the Greek word canon, right? Which still survives in in the English language. And I think what's funny about it is that word survives, I think, as a model, right? So when we talk about the Western canon and the books that you're supposed to read (laughs) in school, like those are the models. Those are the platonic examples of what constitutes good philosophy or or good literature. So this word canon and, and then regula in Latin, they gave birth to all of these different meanings. I was wondering if you could talk about them at their earliest stages. So one interesting thing about the Greek word kanon, which also has an Arabic variant kana, as well as a Hebrew one, is that it's not really a Greek word. It's a loan word. It's from Semitic languages. And it comes from the word meaning the cane plant. And we still hear the echo of the word canon in the word for cane plant. And this is, of course, a plant that grows throughout the Mediterranean, large parts of Eurasia. And it was used for anything that required straight and narrow monitoring. So, for example, a measuring rod or a plane to make sure that we we would use a spirit level for to make sure that your building was straight and and symmetric. The word from its very beginnings had to do with architecture. And at least two of those three threads I mentioned really have their origins in architecture. The model, the architectural model. So like the maquette, right? So the maquette or the the little thing that you... Little thing that architect shows the client to say, this is what you're going to get. And we have... Or a model airplane, right? So a model airplane or... Yeah. Exactly. And When Plato, for example, talks about the ideas of the forms, he's using actually the Greek word, a synonym for canon, which is paradigmata, paradigms, um, which are exactly what those little maquettes were called in ancient Greece. So that's one architectural route. The other, of course, is the building, the builders, the carpenters' tools, the measuring tools, the planing tools. So the word canon is a word of, of doing things. It's a word of carpenters. It's a word of building. The word regula points to the third thread, which is the law. It has the same root as rex, king, to rule. And again, we hear an echo in the English word ruler, which can mean both a straight edge, a measuring rod, but also someone who governs. And that is the Latin heritage of the word. Taking the etymologies of both the Greek and the Latin word, you get an enormous amount of the background history of those three semantic clusters I mentioned at the outset. Now, a, a lot of what you're discussing has to do with the the, the transmission of, of knowledge as well, right? And later in the book, you, you talk about recipes, right? So, uh, you know, I'm someone who, who loves to cook and there are a couple of different ways that you can learn to cook. And one is to follow a recipe sort of step-by-step. Step, and the other is to make specific examples and then to modify them, right? You learn how to make the perfect brown sauce. You learn how to make the the perfect white sauce. And then you go off and play with it. How is the transmission of knowledge related to this idea of reasoning? 
So first of all, recipes are amongst the oldest and the most mobile of knowledge genres that we know. If you want a genre which travels across continents, across centuries, across classes, breaks down the barriers between men and women, it's recipes. And not just recipes for stuff you cook, but especially stuff you cook, but also recipes for medicines, for example, medicines for cosmetics, medicines for paint colors. So this is an enormously important genre in the history of knowledge. And we know this because we have translations of these recipes which go from all the way from the Tin Islands, now what is known as Great Britain, to Japan, to Bergen in Norway in the Middle Ages. So these are extremely important receptacles for knowledge. Now, the kind of knowledge that they contain is not the kind of knowledge, frankly, that we would encounter in The Joy of Cooking or in some other modern cookbook in which there are standardized weights and measures, exact weights and measures, standardized ingredients, and a fair amount of procedural information. For example, how you fold in egg whites or how you know when your cake is done, that it should be, you know, stick a toothpick in the middle to make sure it doesn't come out moist. These recipes tend to be a combination of the extremely specific. So use the mud of Toulouse for a particular eye ointment and the extremely vague, the maddeningly vague, which is basically do what you're supposed to and you'll get what you want. It's most of the early cookbooks, the first cookbooks that come out in the 17th century really depend on you having already had an apprenticeship with a master cook so that the information is, we would say, skeletal insufficient, really, to duplicate the recipe. It depends on your being able to improvise and also to have had a great deal of hands-on experience. This is very typical of early how-to books. In the course of the 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries, these cookbooks become ever more instructive and detailed to the point where we get to IKEA assembly instructions for your bookshelves, which are meant to be totally idiot-proof. But you still see that it's the case that good cooks improvise. So if you look, for example, as I always do, at the comments section on the New York Times recipe columns, you will see that the experienced cooks have substituted ingredients. They have changed the amount of cooking time. They've changed the temperature. They've changed almost everything. And this returns the recipe back to its origins as a very loose plan of action, which is meant to be adapted to circumstances, tastes, and ingredients. So does this make it easier for, for people to learn things? I mean, you, you spent some time talking about the history of, of math, and I was fascinated by those cuneiform tablets that they used for instruction in math. And the way they would teach math is they would throw up a bunch of different examples. And then based on those examples, you're supposed to figure out what the rule is. And now we learn it in a very different way. But does that movement from example to general rule make it more democratically accessible or sort of the barriers to entry to math lower as a result of moving from these model-based instruction to sort of more thin rule type instruction? That's a really interesting question. I wonder about that. In the case of IKEA bookshelves, the answer is definitely yes. If I can assemble IKEA bookshelves, anybody can assemble IKEA bookshelves. So in that case, it's democratized to the point of almost being foolproof. But in the case of the math problems, I wonder whether it really has to do with the diversity of ways of thinking. You're absolutely right. The way in which mathematics was taught not only in ancient Babylonia, where those cuneiform tables come from, was by giving lots and lots and lots of examples. And perhaps this just shows how old I am. I learned a great deal of my math that way in school. I learned to solve word problems in algebra by countless, countless examples 
about swimmers swimming at different speeds in the bathtub and the trains, etc. But the generalizations often are reserved for the higher level math classes because they're more abstract and they're the opposite of democratic for the most part. And one objection to the new math, which was based in an extremely distant genealogy on um, the set theory of the Bourbaki and collective name for a group of mathematicians in the mid-20th century, one objection to it was that it was much too abstract, too general, that it excluded too many students at the elementary and middle school level. So I don't think there's an easy answer to your question. It's a very interesting question, but I, I don't think generalization in the teaching of rules necessarily equates with democratization. Mm -hmm. And then you also talk about how judgment and discretion has acquired a bad name, right, (laughs) in in the modern period. I mean, you didn't spend a lot of time talking about corruption, but I think that at least in democratic societies, when we think about the rule of law and not of men, we don't want to give, say, administrators a whole lot of discretion because we're concerned that they are not interested in the, the greater good, right? They're interested in, in feathering their nests or they're interested in you know, helping out their relatives. And so we, we try to stamp out discretion wherever we can. Do you think the move towards suspicion around discretion is, is motivated by this concern around the greater good and around democracy? Yes. I mean, I do think that there is a strong correlation. I think that corruption is a problem which is almost as universal as human governments. And there are certainly ancient texts that would substantiate that view for all of the ancient cultures for which we have texts. So it's not as if human nature has changed, and it's not as if power does not corrupt. There are warnings about this from almost every form of government and almost every culture and every epoch that we have records for. What changes with democracy is the expectation of equality before the law and also of the same treatment being equated with fair treatment, which means that bureaucrats are suspected immediately of corruption when they perhaps are simply exercising discretion. All of us, I think, have been in the position of going to some office where we need something stamped or approved and explaining to our interlocutor that our case, unfortunately, does not fit the standard case. And therefore, we could not or should not follow the rule exactly. In most cases, this will meet with an icy reception, the very opposite of corruption but a refusal to do what seems almost to any reasonable human being the right thing to do under the circumstances. And that is because in a democracy, any deviation from identical treatment is instantly equated, at least with the suspicion of corruption. And I think that expectation that everybody will be treated in the same way makes for a very rigid enforcement of rules because the suspicion of corruption has a lower threshold than it does in other polities. Now, there are three themes that, that just to return back to the main themes, you, you talk about thick versus thin rules, you talk about flexible versus uh, rigid rules, and then you talk about the relationship between the general and, and the specific. And you don't spend a lot of time on organizational theory, but there's incredible parallels between what you're describing and, and what we have to deal with in organizational theory. So in, in organizations, we talk about rules versus discretion. We talk about where the, the decision-making takes place. And when the people at the higher up in the organization d- design the rules, which constrain the discretion of the people kind of you know lower down. So I was wondering if you could define for us thick versus thin, and what accounts for this kind of movement to prioritize the thin versus the thick? So the thick rules are rules that anticipate a high degree of variability and unforeseen circumstances. So they come upholstered, even in their their articulation, with 
caveats, examples, exceptions. They warn you that you're going to have to use your judgment in applying these rules. So this is like when, when in the, rest, the recipe example, if you say season to taste, right? <laughs> That's a thick rule. Exactly. Or if you are told you may have to add more liquid if your eggs are too small or something, you know, um, of, of that sort. So you're, you're prepared for a circumstance which doesn't fit the recipe to the letter. The thin rule, on the other hand, is short, usually short, peremptory and imperative, and it does not anticipate exceptions. This is a rule which is made for a world which is predictable and uniform. It is a world of standardized weights and measures. It is a world in which planes take off and land on time. Um, it is a world in which you can have a calendar which stretches maybe a year or two years in advance. So it's a presumption about the kind of world one lives in, whether or not one chooses to formulate a rule in this woolly, thick fashion with lots of caveats and examples and exceptions, whether it's formulated in the slender imperative, which anticipates no unpleasant surprises. So that would suggest that if you're in a world that is relatively stable, right, that is repeatable, that is more predictable, then thin rules can do the job, right? You just have to kind of learn over time and, and then take what people are doing. And you talk about tacit knowledge and, you know, express it and articulate it. And if there are exceptions that happen on a fairly regular basis, then you just codify the exceptions, right? If you think about Jean Valjean, right? Jean Valjean comes in, you know, he gets five years for stealing bread. You just say, hey, you know what? If we think that it's a good idea to, to let this guy off, then let's just put a little proviso in the law. You know, you get five years unless you're starving, in which case we're going to give you zero years, right? So why, if we would expect then in, in a world that is relatively stable or at least more easily measured or that has more administrative capacity, we, we would expect this move from thick to thin to occur according to some, I don't know, historical law, right? That's what I thought when I began writing the book. So I had this narrative all planned which is a narrative which unfortunately is all too familiar to historians, which is the arc of modernization. And it was going to be the arc from a world where thick rules were necessary to one where thin rules were. And then came the pandemic, and suddenly nothing worked the way in which it used to. You may remember people shredding their calendars online during the middle months of 2020. You may remember the airlines grounding all of their planes. So. I realize that you're absolutely right in your description about when thin rules tend to multiply, but that there's no necessity about a one-way ratchet effect of an evolution from thick to thin rules. So our world of thin rules, of just-in-time supply chains, of calendars that stretch two years in advance, that all collapsed almost overnight because of an unforeseen circumstance. A tiny virus far away suddenly capsized that order. So instead of thinking about this as the grand sweep of history toward modernization, I began thinking about it as a fragile achievement of technology, political will, a certain amount of the triumph of hope over experience, which at any moment can be at least decentered, if not destroyed, by an unforeseen circumstance, a revolution, a pandemic, climate change. So then the, this maps into the trade-off that we talk about a lot in business between efficiency and resiliency, right? And I think in data science, we talk about overfitting and, and underfitting, right? And if you have a model that is overfit, you're basically modeling it on noise and not on signal, right? And so, and so while it works perfectly, it works great in, with the data you have right in front of you, the minute you start operationalizing it, it kind of veers off track. Exactly. So imagine, to make this concrete, the models that banks use, because they've got to use something to predict what the currency exchange values will be in the coming six months. So they retrofit what the past currency exchange rates have been. And just as you say, the moment they have to 
put their big toe into the cold waters of the future, the, the curves start to diverge wildly. And that, that's just the problem trying to retrofit any volatile phenomenon, stock market prices, for example, anything which has a large amount of noise in it, Brownian motion in it. Yeah, you know, I, I did a podcast recently on junk DNA. And so I, I, I don't know if you know this, but humans have the highest ratio of so-called junk DNA <laughs> to, you know, what might think of as an protein instructional uh, DNA. And and it seems like what the what the junk DNA is doing is it's just providing more and more elaborate complex if thens, right? So, oh, in this circumstance, then, you know, you want to activate these genes, but in, in those circumstances, you want to activate those genes. Right. You want to mentalize something entirely different, right? Yes. Exactly. Yeah. It's like the growth of the bureaucracy right? in the, in, in the modern state or the modern university, right? Where the administrators now outnumber the faculty, right? Because they've got to deal with so many. I thought it was as adaptive as our DNA <laughs> right. was. As yeah. Exactly. But, you know, you also talk about this distinction between kind of flexible and rigid rules. And, and again, does this, I mean, if we're thinking in terms of what's quote better, I mean, can we think in terms of the optimal amount of rigidity or optimal amount of flexibility? No, I think it's, I think it's, an, it's an illusion. It's an extremely beckoning illusion. But I, I suspect for the same reason that retrofitting doesn't work, that optimization doesn't work. In order to optimize, you have to have stable circumstances to which to optimize. And the moment you get any aleatory effect, any kind of chance thrown in there, it's going to go haywire, basically. And because there's a tendency, not a necessary tendency, but a very strong correlation between attempts to optimize and rigidity, because if you think, of course, you found the optimal solution, then you're going to be very rigid. And that makes things worse, of course, because you have no tools with which to adapt should you be thrown a curveball by circumstances. Think about mandatory sentencing rules. So you can see exactly the circumstances the political circumstances in which this would arise, and it would seem perhaps like a good idea. You'd say, look, what we really need is predictability. People need to know that if they commit this kind of crime, there's going to be no wiggle room. There's not going to be a, a pitying judge who is going to let you off. The judge's hands will be tied, and we hope that this will act as a disincentive. And unfortunately, we've seen that it had consequences which were even in many ways more unfortunate than the problem that it was designed to solve. So, and I think that's an, an absolutely classic situation with these attempts to optimize flexibility and rigidity. Yeah. Look, you also cite Thomas Kuhn in the book, and he argued for a very different way of thinking about how knowledge evolves. And he said that this idea of the paradigm is an equally rich way to think about knowledge. Why did he have to fight that fight? And did he ultimately lose that fight? Has he retreated back? I mean, has his th way of thinking retreated to the background? Or do mainstream historians of science still give the, the paradigm view of knowledge evolution equal billing, right, with its alternative? So I'm afraid the historians of science have developed a princess in the pea sensitivity to the word paradigm and paradigm shift. When it became the stuff of New Yorker cartoons, it began to seem to historians of science to have lost any kind of analytical traction. But I still think the book is a great book. I think it deserves to be a classic. Not for the reason, perhaps, that Kuhn thought it was. Kuhn thought that he had shown that the history of science had a pattern. There was a kind of inner rationality to the history of science that made it different from other kinds of human endeavors, that there were these stages of First, a paradigm, normal science conducted within the parameters of the paradigm, an anomaly, which eventually triggers a revolution, a new paradigm, and on. I think no historian of science embraces that any longer. But I still think that his insight into the fact that scientists learn to do science, to do very good science, not by following a bunch of rules called the scientific method, but by having models of what a good problem is, models of what a good solution is. He came aground on the shoals of the fact that paradigms meant too many things to too many people. And also because, 
and this is what really started me on this book, he thought that paradigms couldn't be reconciled with rules. And it became, I think, a conundrum that very much exercised him in the latter part of his career was to try to show how paradigms could produce rigorous knowledge, even though it was not rule-bound knowledge. For me, it was absolutely mind-blowing to discover that rules and paradigms had once been synonyms, and indeed been synonyms for over 2,000 years. I think he had a deep insight, but he didn't know how deep his insight was, that the rules, the so-called rules, were paradigms. Right. And so how do people think about that now? So people don't think of paradigms and, and, and rules as being consistent? No, I think paradigms and models suffer from one problem, which we've already mentioned, which is a political problem, which is the suspicion that discretion inevitably means either favoritism or corruption. But they also, that's in the political domain, in the domain of knowledge, they suffer from being foggy. Nobody can explain how it is that we think in terms of models and paradigms. We do it all the time. Our life would be impossible if we did not do it. So we know that we can do it, but we can't explain how we do it. And that makes the philosophically minded profoundly uncomfortable. It made Kuhn profoundly uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Now, you also talk in the early modern period about the status of the arts, right? And the arts were sort of wedged somewhere between science and, and craft, right? And I hadn't thought about this, but you know, you mentioned that they were thinking in terms of the, the surgical arts, right? And so their definition of the arts was more encompassing than ours, but they also made the distinction between these mechanical arts and liberal arts. So what exactly was going on there with Bacon and, and Boyle and Descartes? And why were they trying to bring the, the mechanical arts to the fore as objects of study? So they had inherited a definition of science, and Locke is still very much using this definition, even though he thinks that it's no longer desirable, in which science is the certain knowledge of universal causes. That sets the bar extremely high. Very few forms of knowledge have that can claim certainty, perhaps only mathematics. What happens in the periods of the 16th and the 17th centuries, which we call the you know, early modern period in Europe, is the enormous prestige, growth and prestige, of what were called the mechanical arts. This is in part because the universities increasingly are not the only centers for knowledge. Courts, competing courts, often courts as small as a Renaissance city like Florence or Rome or Mantua, are competing with each other for the skills of everything from engineers um, who can build fortifications against the new weapons of cannonry to cooks who can grace their tables and impress diplomatic visitors to artists like Leonardo da Vinci or Benvenuto Cellini who are vied for by the crowned heads of Europe to beautify their palaces. So these, what we would call the handicrafts, and this would include both the fine arts like sculpture and painting, but also um, what we might call the trades. Those begin to really blossom with princely patronage. Their stock goes up and up. It coincides also with the advent of movable type of printing. And you see a wave of how-to books in which masters of these mechanical arts print instruction booklets for apprentices as to how they too can make their fortune and establish themselves in a prestigious métier. What people like Bacon and Boyle and Descartes are impressed by is the fact that the mechanical arts are progressing. They're progressing by leaps and bounds. Bacon says, if you look at what's really transformed our society, it's three inventions of the mechanical arts. It's the printing press, it's gunpowder, and the magnetic compass, which has enabled us to discover whole new continents. And what's happened to the sciences? Nothing. They have stagnated since the time of Aristotle. And so it's the enormous prestige and accomplishments of the mechanical arts 
that begin to inspire people like Bacon and Boyle and even Descartes, who is not a person well-known, although perhaps somewhat unfairly, for his attention to the mechanical arts, thinking there must be some way of combining that form of knowledge with more traditional forms of knowledge like mathematics and astronomy and finding some combination of rigor and practical efficacy. But then when we saw the kind of introduction of the factory system, I mean, those folks who were working in the factory, these folks were not artists, right? I mean, these folks were just following very precise rules. And the artistry, to the extent that existed, presumably just went higher up into the organization. I mean, when you talked about the rise of these computational factories, I, I thought I found that, first of all, fascinating that you had these armies of people who were just doing this monotonous computation. Is this rise of the algorithm coincide with the mechanization of the arts? One thing which is extremely interesting about these factory systems is, first of all, not only in computation, but also in computation, they antedate any machines. If you were to look at an 18th century factory in Normandy for the manufacture of pins, and that's what inspires Adam Smith's famous first chapter of The Wealth of Nations on the Division of Labor, the machines that are being used there are pretty primitive. We are not talking about steam-powered looms or anything like what we associate with the Industrial Revolution of the late 18th and the early 19th century. What's really remarkable is that you put a lot of people who otherwise would have been at home doing one or another part of making pins, you put them together in the same space under a manager who has thought through the steps, and now we're back to recipes, the steps for the making of pins and parsed it out according to the skill required to different laborers who are paid at different wages in order to accelerate the efficiency of the production of the pins. But it could be some other product. In the case of the human computers, it was numbers and tables and lots of them. So what's really interesting about the factory system is this kind of managerial mentality, which is to divide a very complicated task, which might have been done by one person or by a family in what was called cottage industry, into many different tasks, which meant that you could simplify each one and assign it to people with fewer skills and therefore who could be paid a lower wage. That was the essence of the factory system whether it was applied to calculating logarithms, as it was at France during the French Revolution, or whether it was applied to making pins. Yeah, and I think you talk about how this mechanization, although it's, it sounds like it's really human mechanization, later followed by actual mechanization, kind of made these prodigies le less impressive, right? So there were these people who could do all these computations in their head, and after a while, people were like, so what, right? And, you know, memorization became less, less impressive. In fact, it almost became a, a bad thing, right? Oh, you're just a, you're just a memorizer, right? It's, it's really interesting because in Greek mythology, and this is a very popular trope right through the Renaissance, Mnemosyne, the goddess of memory, is the mother of the nine muses, so of all the arts and sciences. And it was a prodigious feat, but not that unusual for humanists to have memorized thousands of lines of poetry in several languages. Um, and those kinds of accomplishments begin to seem ridiculous by the time you get to the middle of the 18th century. Instead of memory analysis and criticism becomes the foremost intellectual faculty. And in the case of mental arithmetic, if you talk to people who are still good at mental arithmetic, they will tell you that they do problems by modules. That is, they have chunked together whole calculations. That comes to be seen as entirely superfluous and indeed worthless if a machine can do it. This de-skilling, which first makes it possible to increase efficiency and to lower wages, and then it makes it possible to substitute actual machines for mechanized human labor ends up by demoting what was once seen as an indication of great mathematical talent, for example, for 
um, the great German mathematician Karl Friedrich Gauss, who was um, a prodigy of mental arithmetic when he was young. It comes to be seen as a kind of vaudeville act. Yeah, and I found it interesting also at this time that this is the rise of the watchmaker God, right? God is not even supposed to be checking up on his world. (laughs) He's just supposed to be sitting back and watching everything progress according to these laws of, of nature. It's really interesting because the person whom we most associate with laws of nature, and especially magisterial laws of that clockwork form, is Isaac Newton. But Isaac Newton objected vehemently to the clockwork god of his adversary Leibniz because he thought it meant that God no longer cared about his creation. And he writes famously that um, a lord is someone who has dominion, and someone who does not exercise dominion, a ruler who does not rule actively, is no ruler. As opposed to Leibniz, who thought, a god who has to come in and wind up the clock every now and again is an incompetent clockmaker. It was a famous quarrel between the two of them. And it's also at this time where I think you see this definitive break with the case-based reasoning. And I think it was Pascal that really gave it a bad name because he criticized the Jesuits for saying they're basically modern-day sophists who can construct an argument that'll do anything you want it to do, right? So tell me a bit about this break and why is it that we are so suspicious? I mean, I get it why we would be suspicious in the area of law because we want this rule of laws and not rule of men. But why are we suspicious of this entire way of of reasoning in the modern world. Is it really interesting? I had to reread the Pascal, the provincial letters for writing the book, and I'd read it a long time ago when I I was writing on the history of probability theory. And of course, when I was writing on the history of probability theory, because Pascal invents basically mathematical probability, I was on his side. But when I read this book again, in which, just as you say, he skewers the Jesuits, it's an imagined conversation between a visitor to Paris who visits an obliging but slimy Jesuit who can find a way of excusing even the most heinous crime by some passage in the church fathers or moralists of one kind or another. And I found myself thinking that Pascal was being extremely unfair to the Jesuits. First of all, he was quoting many of their works out of context, but more than that, he was being rigid and fundamentalist, one might say, about the fact that we have only one authority, and that authority, in Pascal's case, because he was a Jansenist, a very strict sect, almost Protestant sect of Catholicism, it's the Bible and the Church Fathers, and leaving no room for tradition, no room for the fact that circumstances might have changed since late antiquity and the time of the Church Fathers, insisting on a universality which did not do justice to the complexity of people's lives. He wanted the same kind of certainty, the same kind of rigor in morals that he could obtain as a mathematician in mathematics. And that is not just unrealistic, but there's something inhuman about that demand for rigor and rigidity. Although those that those provincial letters were the only French debate to survive the 17th century, endlessly were printed, a classic of French literature, especially translated everywhere in the Protestant countries. The Protestant countries love this. It strikes me as a deeply flawed work, and as I say, an inhuman work in, in, in many ways, but it gave casuistry that was the kind of moral theology that the Jesuits were practicing a bad name ever since. Although, if you were to sit in on the ethics boards of any hospital where they have to debate a difficult case, or if you were to even read the ethicist column of the New York Times, you would see that casuistry is being practiced all the time and necessarily being practiced all the time. Our lives do not offer us streamlined textbook examples like mathematical proofs. So I'm not in the least surprised by the survival of case-based reasoning. I'm only sorry 
that Pascal was too successful in giving casuistry a bad name. Well, I think the entirety of your argument is exemplified by your discussion of the law, right, and the role of equity in the law. And I think legal practitioners are a little uncomfortable right, with, with the concept of equity. We're kind of suspicious of it, but it's indispensable, right? You can't get rid of it. I mean, when we look at all the constitutional arguments before the Supreme Court, I mean, it's clear that equity plays a role. But do you think when we bring equity into our legal decision-making that we do it in a way that that's, I don't know, we're ashamed of it. <laughs> so we pretend like we're not doing it. Is, is that the idea? So when we, you said at the end of the book that thick rules will always find their way back in, right? Do we need to just be more ex- explicit about it, more conscious about it? And if we're doing it in sort of a, a backdoor way and an unconscious way, then we're probably going to be doing it less well than we would if we were you know, explicit about it so that if we're using judgment, if we're using discretion, then we need to practice it. We need to explicitly acknowledge it. Is that the danger that we're faced with? I completely agree. I mean, I think that anyone who has ever sat on a college admissions um, committee meeting, for example, or for example, a graduate school selection committee or a fellowship selection committee realizes that we are exercising judgment all the time. And the problem is that we have, and this is very much Kuhn's predicament, we believe that if we cannot give hard and fast criteria and transparent rules, algorithmic rules for why we make our decisions, then we are immersed in the murk of subjective opinion. Mere judgment. Mere judgment, exactly. A judgment call, which is another word for saying it's merely your opinion, it's a matter of taste like your preference. It's just intuition. It's, yeah. Exactly. Some dark, swampy, unconscious, id-like prompting. And that's simply not true. The problem is that we divide our world into the objective and the subjective, but judgment straddles those two categories. It's possible to give reasons, good reasons, bad reasons, and arguments for why one judgment should prevail over another judgment. And If we don't exercise that faculty, it will, like any other faculty, atrophy. And my fear is that because judgment discretion is the faculty that dare not speak its name, we are in danger of becoming judgmentally flabby. When you study uh, legal cases, oftentimes you'll see a test become a a multi-factor test. And so what might start as a a three-factor test becomes a four-factor test, and it becomes a five-factor test and a six-factor test. And I see these as attempts to take what's judgment and convert it into something which is less judgmental. How how can we practice our our judgment? So if we're going to be using judgment and, and discretion, then we need to practice it. And if we're going to practice it, then we need to kind of learn in, in, a, in a different way. How can we learn to refine our judgment? What would it mean in terms of learning to do, say, law, learning to do business, learning to do history? So we know, for example, and I'm sure this is your experience because you teach case-based reasoning, we know that people can get better at this. Fortunately, it would be very dismal for teachers if this were not the case, that we know that students who go to law school get better at this. They get better at realizing out of all the possible precedents for the case at hand, which ones are really a posit, which ones are really illuminating. And we also notice that good lawyers converge in their judgments. They don't always entirely agree, but there's an extraordinary amount of convergence. So that's the first step. We know it can be taught. And we know it can be taught by practice. So the way in which people get better at determining opposite legal precedents is to go through a lot of cases and to talk about them. The second way in which we can exercise it is to be articulate about it. It is astonishing to me when I sit on the committees we all sit on at universities to award fellowships and the like, that people who are otherwise exquisitely articulate, eloquent, are tongue-tied when it comes to giving reasons for their judgments for preferring one candidate above another. So it's the, the practice 
of fitting words to judgments. Again, something which can be honed to a high polish. And the third is, this is public reason. And because of the distrust and the shame associated with it, it's now exercised mostly in private. It has to be ventilated, made public reason, so that my judgments and your judgments clash in an open forum of discussion, and we must defend them or decide that the other side has the better argument, the better judgment. Those are perhaps disappointingly simple, but they are also encouragingly simple ways in which judgment could be rehabilitated and made vigorous again. But it seems like when we're, whether we're teaching business or law, when we do the case selection for instruction, we tend to pick the difficult cases, the boundary cases, right? And this seems different from the idea of models in that you originally articulated where you want to, okay, here's like the perfect body, right? Here's what it means to do a sculpture. Like, here's what it means to, to build a temple. We don't typically do that. We don't typically say like, here's your classic murder case. We say, here's a case where, huh, there's a lot of stuff going on here and it's difficult. Is it better to learn from the boundary cases? I mean, do we just, or should we reintroduce these more pure versions of the different categories we're discussing? Kant makes an interesting distinction in the Critique of Judgment, which was the last great work as far as I'm concerned about judgment, in which he says, talented people just follow the model. So they take the classical sculpture and they say, this is the ideal of male beauty, this is the ideal of female beauty, and they do a beautiful imitation of it. Genius takes the model and transforms it into something different. It pushes it to its limits. So I think what's going on is that the rules which are formulated on the basis of models are for beginners. And beginners are the people who need rules most. They need the models most. What you're teaching when you use a boundary case is advanced judgment. You are teaching the kind of case which shows you why you need thick rules rather than thin rules. You are showing just how complicated the world can be. And of course, how much. You know, you need virtuoso judgment to solve that kind of case. Yeah, and it's also, I think, why people are very uncomfortable with it, <laughs> right? So modern students, when they get to kind of case-based discussions, they're frustrated, right? Because they, they just like, can you just please just spell out the rule for me? Can you please just give me a set of, a nice little instruction set, nice little decision tree, tell me exactly how many tablespoons I need to put into this dish, right? But I don't give it to them because that would be, that would make it too easy. It also is impossible. Lorraine, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. This book uh, is called Rules, A Short History of What We Live By. We didn't even get into the specific examples that much of, you know, sumptuary laws, great discussion in there, discussion about how to make the streets of Paris safer, right? Also interesting discussions about the regularization of, of spelling. And of course, I love the whole story about how algorithms took over in, in the world of mathematics. So much there. Thanks for joining me. Talk again soon. It was a great pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast produced by University FM. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review in your favorite listening app. To listen to our other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com.